Turn to First Samuel chapter 13. I could tell you a lot of good things about her. And I just might anyway. Samuel 13. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for who you are. We thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be yours. We want to experience you. Lord, I ask that every single person in this room, those that, whose feet are caught still in the trap of private and secret sin, help us. Let us feel what you feel about us, Lord. Lord, we ask for the tenderness of your heart, because we know your heart. You're the tender God. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, the problem with the setup, a setting like this, is that we're like all going for God. We're going for God. And we can end up living in unreality. We can end up thinking that screaming and losing our voice like Lou Engel is what it's about. You know, if we, ah, then we're in. And our lives are hurt, and there's pain, and there's brokenness, and there's all kinds of things. And the Lord says, I want the whole you. I really like you. I really want the whole of who you are. It's not just about believing the unbelievable and doing what no generation has ever done. There's something even more profound than that, and that's wonderful. The fact that the infinite God of glory and power is really, really lovesick over us and our weakness and our brokenness. The greatest message I know of, for me personally, is God says, I really like you, Mike. I can't get over that message. God, there's one billion galaxies in your power. I love all that, but the part I really like, tell me that one part again, that you really like me. That's my favorite part of the whole gospel. I really like you, Mike. No, it really is. We never outgrow the thrill of the wonder of being loved. It's so wonderful to feel loved. It's an absolutely wonderful way to live. God made us. The God of love made us to long to be loved. It's wonderful to feel loved. I didn't say it's wonderful to be loved because God loves His people. But most of them are so disconnected from that that though he loves them, they can't feel it. I'm going to add a word. It's wonderful to feel it. To feel it. You'll never outgrow it. I'll never outgrow it. You'll never outgrow it. And in the midst of all this, my, my only fear is that gatherings like this and the big one next year can be about shouting and screaming and charging and we're going to do the night watch and we're going to give it the poor and we're going to do it. And it's, it's so much more than that. That's the outflow of something very powerful and quiet that's working. The sweet whisper of God in my soul. Mike, I really like especially you. Oh, I love that whisper. That's my favorite. Tell me that again. And that whisper is for every one of you. Elijah, with all the thunder in the, in the mountains in 1 Kings 19, the thunder and the storm and the fire and the rain and the, and the sweet whisper. I love the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake, but I tell you, I love the sweet whisper. I like especially you, Mike. 
The Lord's capacity is so great, He likes especially every one of us that will say yes back to Him. We become recipients of that special love. That is so wonderful. It makes the whole thing so different. First Samuel chapter 13, I want to introduce a man to you that the majority of you in this room are very familiar with. It's King David, the great warrior king of Israel. King David's about 14 or 15 years old right here. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. He's about 15 years old. No one knows for sure. Possibly younger. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon a prophet named Samuel, the anointed prophet Samuel. The Lord whispers in Samuel's ear, the prophet. He said, the rebellious king of Israel, Saul, I'm, re I'm replacing him. The rebellious king, I'm replacing him. And he whispers into the prophet's ear, I have found a young man that has a heart for me. He doesn't even know that I have found him. See, the mystery of this, there's many mysterious points of this verse. But one of the mysteries of this verse is that David is 15 years old on the backside of some hill in Bethlehem. I mean, Bethlehem's 300 people. It's kind of Hooterville minus one. I mean, it's... Really bad. You had to be over 40 to, to appreciate that. But anyway, it's real little. It's, it's a poor, out-of-the-way, out of nowhere place. He's the youngest of eight brothers. He's left out continually. Many times in his family, he's rejected. It, it's, a, it's, it's a real deal. He's the, he's the youngest, and he's often rejected. It's a very poor family, a little 300-member town. He does the most boring job. He tends sheep all day by himself. He made a little guitar, probably wasn't much, his poor family. But he began to look up at the stars at night and say, Oh, I love you. I don't know you, but I love you. I want to know you. What are you like? Who are you? What's going on? And something was moving in this young guitar player's heart at age 14, 15 years old in this very poor, out-of-the-way, boring town with a very boring job and a poor family. That's so mysterious, and God whispers to the prophet Samuel, that kid over there, that guitar player that doesn't know I've heard his voice, I like him. He's got a heart for me. I've taken note of that kid. I want you to announce who he is to the rebellious King Saul, and I want you to tell him one day when you meet him what I think about him. And David becomes the picture. He becomes the picture. Of the end time church, the church that the Lord is raising up before the Lord re returns is, a, is a, a church after God's own heart like David. I need to turn the sound down a little bit. Still hit me. Look at look, verse 14. It says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. He sought for himself a man after his own heart. What does it mean to be a man or a person after God's own heart? Because the church at the end of the age, and I believe we're in that hour, I believe there's people alive on the earth today that are going to witness the appearing of the Lord in the sky. I do believe that with all my heart. Maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, maybe 40 years, maybe 50. I don't know. But I, I believe it's a little bit down the road, time-wise. But I believe there's people on the earth that will witness the appearing of Jesus in the sky and all the conflict described in the Word of God at the end of the age. And God is raising up a people after his own heart, like David. The life of David, beloved, the life of David is a very, very important 
place of study in the Word of God for the end-time church. Because God has made this one man a picture of what the people across the earth are going to live like before Him. We cannot afford not to be familiar with the life of David. We must study the life of David. The great worshiping warrior of the life of David, the message of David's life was in his weakness, God enjoyed him, and God was lovesick over him in the midst of his weakness. That was the secret of David's heart. David had a confidence that God enjoyed him and God liked him even while he was still maturing. David's view of holiness was so radically different than the view of holiness of so many places throughout all church history. It is clear in the Word of God that God is angry at rebellion. It is very clear. God is angry at rebellion. But beloved, let me tell you this. There is a dynamic difference between rebellion and immaturity. And many, many people who love Jesus are immature, but they relate to God as though they're rebellious and they're running from a God they think is mad at them and angry at them and ready to crush them. And the God who relates to them sees their immaturity and relates to them like he does David, not like they're rebellious, but they're confused about it. Their whole idea of God is so off. Their idea of prayer is off. Their idea of holiness is off. Because at the very beginning of the journey, they mistake the most fundamental principle they mistake rebellion with immaturity, and everything that's immature they think is rebellious. That's a serious, serious mistake in the grace of God to interpret immaturity as rebellion and then to relate to God with no confidence at all because we feel we're rebellious and that God's about to judge us with His wrath. They say, well, when does God... When does God begin to enjoy us? I remember I was talking to a bunch of... I mean, I love to talk about the gladness of God's heart. It's one of my favorite messages, the, the glad heart of God, because today, many, many people believe God is mostly mad or mostly sad. Their picture of God, He's mostly mad when He looks at them, or He's mostly sad. He's either mad, says, I'm going to break every bone in your body when I get my hands on you. And so they're going, you know, talk, talking to believers. Or... He's not mad at him. He's sad. He goes, you know, I'm just so grieved about you again. I'm not going to break every bone of your body, but I'm just so disappointed again. Every time I think of you, it grieves me. I'm telling you, this is, I would guess to say, the majority of the people in this room, if we pressed it, if we pushed it, and i got some questions I could ask you. They're a little bit painful. They're a little bit precise. If we pushed it, most people in this room have a God that's mostly mad or mostly sad when, they were, when, God, when, when the issue of their immaturity comes before them. Beloved, I have good news for you. He's mostly glad when He looks at you. It changes everything because you run to Him instead of from Him. If He's mostly mad and sad, you turn around and run from Him. If He's mostly glad when He sees your weakness, He says, Come! Come, he goes, I know your weakness. I know more than you know. I'm going to help you. I love you. You're mine. You go, no, get out of here. That's not real. Yes. Really? I mean, I so love to be loved. I'm just like you. I love to be loved. It's such a, 
a wonderful way to live. It's like, really? We inch forward. You know, we got to get through all of this teaching we've heard from so many years, you know. And the older you are, the more bad teaching you've had as a rule. And so we inch towards him, and he still like me, sort of, iffy. And we don't know, we don't have the confidence. David, in his weakness, would walk boldly, Father, Abba. Here I am, I've sinned, I'm broken, I love you, God. It's my weakness. God, I know that in your infinite mercy you want me, I want you. He had this confidence as a lover that is found nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's absolutely amazing, David's confidence as a lover in his weakness. See, he wasn't just confident that God loved him. That's one thing. Instead of the word love, let's use the word enjoyed. Let's not use the word God loves me. I mean, we use it all the time, but I mean, for, for this paragraph here, instead of saying God loved me, I'm going to say God enjoys me. That pushes it a little bit. God enjoys me even in my weakness. It's not enough to know that God enjoys me and I have confidence that He actually likes me while I'm growing up it's more than that. My love, when my love for Jesus is weak, it's still real. See, we have this idea that our love isn't real until our love is mature. So, one of these days, when we're 60, and our love is mature, then it's real. So for the 40 years between age 20 and 60, our love was never real while it was maturing. It was always false until it was mature. Because most people I know think that love isn't real until love is mature. When love is weak, it's false. In the eyes of many, many people in the body of Christ, and let me tell you, your weak love is authentic. It's real and it's genuine even when it's weak. It's more than I need to have confidence that God loves me. I have to have a second thing, confidence that God believes I love Him even when I'm weak. It's one thing after I've stumbled and I've repented. Beloved, I believe powerfully in repentance. I'm not trying to make it easy for people to live in darkness. Darkness will destroy you. I'm trying to give people a way back into the Father's embrace when they run into the weakness in their life. Big difference. But it's one thing to say, God, you want me. But it's an entirely second, I mean, an entirely different point to say, and you know you believe I want you. When I stand before God in my weakness, I stand love, but I stand not as a hypocrite who just receives free love. I am love, but He sees me as an authentic lover even when I'm weak. He goes, Mike, your love's real. I know you love me. You're not a hypocrite under grace. You're a genuine lover who's still weak. And beloved, when I feel loved, and I know I'm a lover in return, Oh, my heart is alive. I go, I love this. I love the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. I can do anything if that's the relationship and that's the way David lived before God. Verse 14, David was a man after God's own heart. Now, there's two different definitions I like to use for a man, a person after God's own heart. And this is really important for you because you're going... The church worldwide, we are a people after God's own heart, like David. A person after God's own heart, number one, David's a man after God's own heart because he obeyed the commands of God's heart. He obeyed the commands. There was a yes in his spirit to the Word of God. There was a commitment to obedience. He obeyed the commands of God's heart. 
But beloved, there's a second definition to being a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. He studied, here it is, he studied the emotions of God's heart. What? Studied the emotions of God's heart? What is that? David was a man after God's own heart because he obeyed the commands of God's heart, number one. And number two, he studied, he became a student of the emotions of God. In that way, he was a man after, he was a man going after what was burning in God's heart. I want to know what you feel. I want to know what you're thinking. I don't want to know what you're feeling. I want to know your heart. He became a student of the affections of God. God's raising up an army of radically dedicated people. They are students of the affections of God. Now, in your own soul, I just want to pause a second. You should all close your eyes. Just for once, I have one moment. I want you to say something to the Lord. Not my words, your own words. I'm going to give you 30 to 60 seconds, just quietly. You're going to say, I want to be a student of your affections. I never thought about that. I want to be a student of your emotions. I want to study. I tell you, it will be a new feeling to connect with her. I want to be a student. Lord, I want to do this. I want to be like David. I want to do this. I don't know how to do it, but I want to do it. If somebody will tell me how to do it, I'll do it. I want to know your heart. Talk to him for just a second. I want to do this, God. I want to be like David. Why not me? Why all the other people? Why not me? Why can't I do this? Beloved, when it connected with me some years ago, I could be a student of God's heart, of his emotions. It exhilarated. It put me on a path in God that will... I mean, it's not like everybody's going to be led to night and day prayer through it, but it will, it will have a bias towards night and day prayer because... When you touch that room, you have to have more. You have to. It has a dimension. When you touch a little bit, you have to have more. Because a little bit of that information, when it becomes revelation, creates a hunger. It creates an appetite that has to be fed. Your appetite for more increases. Your capacity to receive it increases. Students of God's own heart. David was... The most unique, one of the, I mean, I don't know if the most, but certainly one of the most unique men in the Old Testament, if not the most. There was no man in the Old Testament that had, that had understanding of God's emotions like King David. Nobody. He stood in a class of his own. I mean, here's Moses. Moses has all these real powerful encounters with God. David comes about 600 years after Moses, five, 600 years later, and Moses David gets so much more understanding of, of God's heart than Moses had. He brings the kingdom of God to an entirely different level. And nobody, after David, all the great prophets, nobody received greater understanding of God's heart in the Old Testament than King David. The man after God's own heart. Here's what God wants us to do. God wants us to be a people after his own heart. He wants us to obey the commands, but he wants us to become students of his emotions. He wants us, I know some of you say, I don't even know how to do that. That's okay. We're going to talk about how to do that. But I want this idea. It's a new idea to many of you. I want this idea to connect with you. Here's why. Because to know the emotions of God's heart, it's a very important principle I'm telling you right now. To know the emotions of God's heart is what will equip you to obey the commands of God's heart. 
To know the emotions of God is what will equip you to obey the commands. The church all over the world, there's this new kind of resurgence, kind of revival spirit. At the, you know, it's, it's at the beginning, but all over. People are wanting to get radical to obey, radical to obey, and they're going hard after it. One month turns to one year. They're hitting the wall. They're hitting the wall. The obedience they had in the revival meeting a year ago isn't that same desire is gone. Because our ability to obey is related to our revelation of God's heart. The revelation of God's emotions is what equips your heart for radical obedience. And the call to obedience without a corresponding revelation of God's emotion leaves us frustrated in many, many places. There's always an exception of a, of a person who's not frustrated, but more times than not it leaves us frustrated. We have to become students of God's emotions. That was the secret of David's life. David wanted to know more than the what of God. He wanted to know God's power, but he wanted to know more than the what of God. He wanted to know the why of God. He didn't want to just know that God had power to create the heavens and the earth and the wisdom. He loved the what of God's power, what God did. God created. God redeemed. God leads history. God works miracles. What did God do? He intervenes with power. God leads with wisdom. The what of God, what God does, is a powerful subject that I love to study. But I want to know something more than what He does. I want to know why He does it. What are you feeling when you created the heavens and the earth? When you used your power to make stars and galaxies and the earth of the human race, what were you feeling? I want to know that because it matters to my life to know why you did this thing called making me. Did you make me to display your wisdom and power in making humans? Or did you make me and other humans because you burned with desire for humans? And the, Lord answer, the Lord's answer, I burned with desire for humans. I wanted them. I wanted them. I want you, Mike. In your weakness, I want you. When others don't, I want you. Beloved, when you know what God's heart looks like emotionally, then you know what you look like spiritually to God. Then, 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 you'll change your lifestyle. You'll never ever get anybody to change their actions long term until they change the way they view themselves before God. And they will never change the way they do themselves before God until they get a new idea of God's heart. The church, we got three mission fields. The church is reaching out to the world. Be saved in the name of Jesus. So they get saved. You know, we lead them to saving knowledge. They get saved. We call that evangelism. That's awesome. The very center of the prayer movement is evangelism. We don't like do prayer so we can kind of escape the hassle of evangelism. We do prayer for evangelism. It's, one of the, it's not the only reason, but it's certainly central to the prayer movement is evangelism. So, now that they're saved, mission field number one, they're saved. T minus 10, T minus 9, T minus 8, just a little bit of time. Now they're bored, stagnant Christians. So now we got a mission field two. These bored Christians, we have to go get them dedicated. we got to get them to shake off the dust and get dedicated. So now, first they were lost, now they're saved. Now they're saved, they, got, they backslid. Now we get them dedicated. So here they are, dedicated. But you only got a minute. They're only going to be dedicated maybe a year or two. I'm telling you, 
It's like the hourglass turns. They say yes to radical dedication. In just a minute, they're going to be back cold again. In just a year or two, they'll be, they'll be cold, uh, cold as ice. Because if they've got to go beyond dedication, they've got to live in fascination with God. God created us to be fascinated with Him. I'm talking to dedicated people. I say, Lord, let me talk to dedicated people and help get them fascinated by the Word of the Spirit about Jesus Christ. Because if you get fascinated, then there's a replenishing. There's the thing renews itself all the time. Living fascinated, living lovesick, living overwhelmed at God's passion for us, that is the fruit of studying the emotions of God. We started a whole Bible school. Forerunner School of Prayer. We started an entire Bible school around the subject of teaching people God's emotion. I mean, the very the, the, the key theme of the whole Bible school, we wanted a school that would train, whether they're the interns or the students or the IHOP staff, we wanted an entire operation that just inundated people with the emotions of God so they would have the heart of David. They would be so secure in the love of God, so fascinated by the beauty of God, that their dedication, because it's fueled by fascination, their dedication would stand the test of time. The Lord told us, He goes, raise up a whole Bible school around fascinating people with my son. We teach all the, you know, the books of the Bible and all the normal stuff, but the core of our Bible school is bringing people into fascination with Jesus so they can go do the work of the kingdom from an entirely different point of view. So God wants you to be a man or a woman after his own heart. You may be 15 years old. You may be that little guitar player in that little 300-member town, totally bored with your $5-an-hour job down at Quick Trip. I mean, David was like total minimum wage all by himself going, this is really not working for me. He was bored. He was poor. He was left out. He was all by himself. And God said, I'm going to show you what my heart's like, David. And I'm going to take you out of that place. And beloved, the, the great glory isn't to be removed from Bethlehem and put on a throne in this age. My goal isn't to be on a throne in Jerusalem. David went to, to a throne. My goal is to be fascinated with the beautiful God. I don't care if he keeps me in Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem with the beautiful God is, is heaven on earth. It's wherever. I don't care where I go. My goal isn't to fill the stadiums. I want to fill the stadiums because I want humans to hear this message. I don't want to fill the stadiums so I can ride home and say, Dear Mom, I made it. I told you I would. I don't want to fill the stadiums to make a point about, See, I was in the bottom half of my senior class, but I told you I'd make it one of these days. It's not about that. I want to fill the stadium because I want people like you and me going, Oh! This is incredible. Is it really true? I want millions saying what I'm saying. Is this really true? Oh, come on, Lord. Really, really, really. If it's true, it's really awesome. That's what I want millions to say. That's why I want to fill stadiums. I'm not trying to get out of Bethlehem or trying to get to Jerusalem because God took David out of this little 300 town in Bethlehem and put him in the capital city. That's not the point. That was incidental. That was secondary. Turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, I mean, this is just a crazy statement, what I'm going to say next. It's just got to be the greatest psalm of David. Now, I know tomorrow I'll say one of the other ones is. Psalm 16. Oh, 
It hurts so good. Psalm 16, if you wanted to title Psalm 16, you could title it a dozen ways. Every line, and I hope to get, I got another session or two, I hope to develop this a little bit. Every line, there's not a wasted line on one theme. David's paradigm of enjoyable prayer. Every single line. You may look through it and go, what's that verse 4, drink and blood? What on earth is that about? Every line of Psalm 16 is about David's theology of experiencing enjoyable prayer. Every single line of the psalmist. You could call it enjoying intimacy with God. Every single line of the psalm is David's inner life about how he views God so differently than almost everybody in his day. And it's the Psalm 16 revelation, and we could pick out a half a dozen other psalms and say the same thing. Psalm 16 is the inner workings of David's ideas about God. Laid out. One, two, three, four. It is so brilliant. You say, I want to know what David knew. I want to see what David saw. The Lord says, if you want it, you can have it. If you want it, you can have it. Look at verse 16. I mean, here's the Sam Storms. It says, favorite verse. Sam, is this still your favorite verse? That's what I mean. Psalm 16, verse 11. He wrote a book. Did, did I didn't say verse 11? Oh, whatever. I, yeah, that's his favorite verse, verse 11. He wrote a book on this, on this verse called Pleasures Forevermore. It's absolutely fantastic. We had it in our bookstore. I told him, I go, buy a books, just boxes of this book. Pleasures forevermore. Sam develops, verse 11, a line upon line, how God is a God of pleasure. What an interesting idea. Look what David says in Psalm 16, verse 11. Okay, i got to make sure I say it right. Psalm 16, he says three statements. We're only going to look at just a minute at one or two of them. Because my goal isn't to try to cover the whole thing. My goal is to point to a realm of reality. I mean, we could, that's why we have Bible schools, to spend three months on Psalm 16. I can't cover it in a, in a session or two. But I can point and say, beloved, there's something here so powerful. Look at Psalm 16. Look at, right in the middle. One of the three. I mean, these three are all worth hours and hours of teaching. He says, Lord, in your presence is the fullness of joy. What a statement. This was the, one of the secrets of David's life as he understood God's emotions. He said, you're a God of gladness. You're, you're overflowing with gladness in your personality. Beloved, do you know how strange of a doctrine that was in David's day? It's as strange today. Now, we know the verse, so we have to say yes to it. It's in the Bible. But I tell you, the way we preach holiness, the way we preach prayer, the way we preach dedication tells us we don't have a clue what verse 11 means. Almost worldwide in the church. I certainly don't understand it very much. I'm at the beginning of the beginning of this. David says, let me tell you about the God that I'm lovesick. He is a God of overflowing gladness. The closer you get to His throne in heaven, in His presence, think about the throne of God in Revelation 4. The closer you get to the throne, the happier they are. You, if you were to go to heaven right now, just get transported by the Holy Spirit, you're standing there before the throne of God, you would be shocked by the feeling of happiness. You would have... You would have you would have overwhelming care of God's majesty and an overflowing happiness. You'd be going, more, I can't take more, too much, never enough, it's too much, I can't take it, I want more, ah, get me out of here, it feels so good, oh, it's so hor horrifying because it's so intense. But let's 
forget all of that for now, but if you got up there, you would go, this is intense. Someone goes, what are you feeling? I love it up here. I just feel good. Here's the elders. They're falling down. You go, Excuse me. You know, I know you're worshiping, but uh, Bickle at that one thing conference said something. I want to know if it's true. Are you happy? Oh, my goodness. He's smiling. Are you happy? He gets up and says, the closer we get, the happier we are. It's incredible. In his presence, around his throne, is the fullness of joy. The angels in his presence are full of joy. Jesus at the right hand. Oh, Father, I love you. Father, oh, Jesus, I love this. I love my kingdom. I love you. I love the angels. I love my people. This is awesome. So we step out of heaven. We go back to the earth. We look up. And all of a sudden, we get this mean, mad God. Beloved, God is angry at rebellion. I want to be very clear about that. He relates to immaturity very, very different. In His fullest, is the, in, in the presence, around the throne, is the happy God with the happy angels and the happy people. And I'm talking about happiness of overflowing joy. This is one of the great secrets. This wasn't a little verse David threw out. This verse was a title, I'm making this part up, but this verse was a title of about ten books that David wrote. I mean, my point being, I'm making that up, he had volumes and volumes and volumes to say about in the presence of God is total happiness, total joy. He was, he was just giving the title of a section of his library here. This wasn't kind of an afterthought. This is one of the biggest doctrines of David's life right there. Sam Storms devoted an entire book to it. It is absolutely brilliant. Good job, Sam. Pleasures forevermore. Hebrews 1, verse 9. Hebrews 1, 9 says this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Jesus was the happiest man that ever walked on planet Earth. That's what it says. Jesus had more of his Father's gladness than any human that ever walked on Earth. Picture Jesus. This 30-year-old man. He comes into town. He has the brightness of his father's countenance. He understands human weakness. He likes us. He loves us. This is the day, this is the God Jesus, that David worships. Jesus walks into town. Hebrews 1.9 has more gladness. He's anointed. It's not just he has gladness. He has his father's gladness. His gladness isn't like his father's going, there he goes again. The father says, that looks like me. That's how I feel. It was his father's gladness he was anointed with. Jesus walks into town. Comes walking in. Stranger, famous preacher. They've heard about him. Everyone's getting healed. The kids. The kids. Ah, they run up and grab me. We love, we like this guy. He's rubbing the kids' head and, and, and the, you know, the moms. Don't. He's a famous preacher. He goes, no, you know, you can't do that. You can't go do that. Why did you do that, mom? I can tell he likes me. I can tell. He looked at me. He winked. I know he likes me. He was a stranger, and the kids flocked to him. Lenny and Tracy LaGuardia are on our staff, and they've given themselves to children and the happiness of God and introducing them to the happy God and the Holy Spirit. It's amazing the grace of God that's on their life. I just so appreciate them. They've given their whole life to showing children the face of God. I can see these kids. Here they come running through. They look at the 12 disciples. And they go, uh, I'm not sure. What's the tip-off? You know, here's John and James. 
kids. Back with the children. Back, back. The man of God. Kids, get out of here. Out, out. And they go, ah, uh, the kids go, I don't think, no, I don't think we like them. We don't, I don't think they like us. So the kids are trying to sneak there, and Jesus is down. They grab him, and they go, Mom, I know he likes us. I know he likes me. That's why I like him. That's the secret right there. The Pharisees, the kids look at me and go, no way for sure. Absolutely. No way with those guys. No way. You know why? Because when the kids looked at the Pharisees, the hug of Pharisee was as ridiculous as going to a prayer meeting with a mad God. Really, it's true. To hug a Pharisee, for one of these little six-year-olds to, like, hug one of these angry, cranky guys, like, if they're related to him, maybe at Christmas for one moment, if the, if, the, if the prize is big enough, that's it. These kids, this little six-year-old boy is no more going to hug that cranky Pharisee, but you know what? We preach a God that looks like a Pharisee, and we tell people to go to a prayer meeting and endure Endure the boring sin, I mean the boring exercises of a boring mad God. There's a reason the prayer uh, the prayer movement around the world has been so so utterly short fused. Because our view of God is so unlike David's view of God, who wants to go sit in a prayer meeting and endure the disappointment of a mad God? It's like asking a kid, would you like to go to the principal's office? Hey, can I go to the principal's office tomorrow? That would be sitting there. Hi, I'm going to beat you, you little kid. Oh, I love being in this principal's office. That's how we're trying to get the church into prayer meetings. You couldn't get a kid to volunteer for the principal's office. You couldn't get a kid to go hug that Pharisee. But we're trying to get a church to sit in a boring prayer meeting with a mad God. They're not going to do it. They absolutely are not going to do it. So, here's what we've done. 2,000 years of preaching. We've shifted over, and we've presented prayer as pay the price. Pay the price. You will pay the price for prayer. If you will hang in there and endure the mean and boring God, if you can do this, God will reward you. If you thought all the way through the theology that's going on for holiness and prayer today, I hear it and I go, I wouldn't go to that prayer meeting. I'm serious. Now, I know this is, I've, I've taught on pay the price and count the cost and sacrifice, but I'm not going to give all the qualifiers because I'm speaking to your heart about something. I'm not trying to dot every I and cross every T, and so forgive me if I kick one of your golden calves accidentally. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal, for real. Here's what's going on. We're, because we got a wrong view of God, we have a wrong view of ourselves. So we have a wrong view of prayer and a wrong view of holiness. A mad God, a hypocrite person, paying the price for boring holiness. That's it. A mad God with a hypocrite person, God's mad, I'm just a hypocrite anyway, Paying the price for boring holiness and boring prayer. So the preachers can't get anybody to be holy or anybody to go to the prayer meeting, so they, they kick out the, if you will pay the price. And see the Father saying, 
Jesus, I, I like, like being with you. Are we that hard to be with? The angels go, we love being with you. They don't understand who you are. I'm, I'm wondering what the angels are thinking. They're hearing us talk about enduring and paying the price and the cost and sacrificing to do prayer. They're going, they don't know the God we hang out with. They just do not know Him. We, when we get promoted, we get to go closer to Him. These guys are talking about paying the price to endure Him. It's really true. I mean, let's, let's make it personal. Here I am. This is made up. Truly, totally made up story. This next thing I'm telling you. you got to be really clear. I'm on the telephone. I'm not really. This didn't really happen. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pay the price and have dinner with my wife. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to. I've counted the cost. It's uh, really boring. You know, it's a real drag. But I mean, you know, you get in big trouble if you don't. So, yeah, what the heck. That's how we preach on prayer and holiness. Mad God, boring kingdom, hang in there. We preach about exciting devil, boring God. Exciting devil, boring God. I remember I was 18 years old, 19. I was 19. I went to the University of Missouri. It's a, a few miles, a couple hours down the road here. There you go. MU Tigers. Anyway. So, <clears throat> University of Missouri, lead a Bible study. They told me, you got to pray. 19 years old. I'm going to pray because our youth group, we all were committed to go be missionaries and martyrs. We wanted to go to the mission field and hopefully die. That was what we were into. Yeah. I mean, in the early 70s, in the early 70s, before they had cars and telephones, back in the early 70s, there was a, a move of the Spirit across the land, 69 about 73, and millions of teenagers came to the Lord in the 69 to 79. They called the Jesus Movement. And hundreds and hundreds of my high school, we were swept into the kingdom. Just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds everywhere. Our youth group grew from 200 to 1,200 overnight. All, youth groups all over the America did. Some grew to five and 10,000, like that. It was, that was only a little gentle breeze of what's coming. But so, we're committed. We're all, and, and our teachers, revival, missionaries, I mean, we're going, we're prayer meetings. So they tell me, you got to pray. I said, okay, I'm going for it. I got like 10 prayer books. So I'm at University of Missouri. They say an hour a day, pray an hour a day. I go, that's what you got to do, I'll do it. So I read these books on prayer. And all these books are mad God, hypocrite, believer, boring kingdom. Hang in there and it gets better in eternity. So I committed to an hour. I made this, this promise to God, I'd do this. So here it is, 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock every night. Get there, 9 o'clock, 9.01. Dear God, I said, uh, uh, help me in the college Bible study. I was leading the Bible study. Help the Bible study. Help me do good on the football team. Help me get a good girlfriend. Help me... I did. I really prayed that. He, he answered me profoundly. And uh, then I said, uh, the kids in India are starving. Help the kids in India. That'd be really great. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Clothes, food, that whole deal. Thank you. I would look up. 58 minutes to go. 
man. I said, this is, okay, 58. I'm in a dark room. Door's locked. I got four roommates. They're in the other room laughing. So I walk up down. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Help me on the football team. Help me with the Bible study. Give me a good girlfriend. That would really be good. Help me. Just, you know, help me. You know, Lord, you know what I need. 57 minutes to go. Oh, my goodness. Here was my fundamental problem when I was 19 years old. I loved God. I was a radical at 19 years old for Jesus. I hated prayer. I hated Bible study. I hated witnessing and fasting, but I loved God. I really did. I loved God and I loved meetings. I loved to go to meetings. I was a meeting addict. I'd go to every meeting. Go, go, come early, stay late. Loved meetings. I loved God. Hated prayer. Hated personal Bible study. Hated fasting. And witnessing. On a good day, I could witness here and there. But mostly, that was kind of hard too. I said, Lord, I'm really in a mess because everything that I need to do, according to all these books, I'm really bad at. So I'm really in a mess. So what I would do is, I would go buy books on prayer and read them about six at night to get me, at least if I felt if I read books that said, you oh dirty sinner, if you don't like prayer, you're wicked. So it made me feel good to feel bad. I said, if I beat myself with these prayer books, you know, shake me over hell on a rotten stick kind of thing. If I felt bad about being bad at prayer, at least that was a little bit better than just feeling nothing like some of my buddies. They didn't feel anything about hating prayer. At least I felt bad about it. It's 8 o'clock. One hour before the, the hour of terror began. I mean, every night. We're talking every night. It's Christmas break. I did one of these things. I will do it 365 days a year. That meant Christmas break. That meant after everything. I was like, oh, why did I do that? Eight o'clock, an hour to go. Sweat starts coming out. Oh my gosh. In, in 60 minutes, I gotta face the boring mad God again. <laughs> Beloved, I begin to study the life of David and the Song of Solomon. My idea of God began to change. My idea of what I look like to God changed. My idea of prayer changed. If you would have told me when I was 19 years old I would be leading a 24-hour-day prayer movement, I would have laughed. Impossible! I hate prayer! I love God. I hate prayer. Then it hit me. Someone says, why do you think God called you to raise up this IHOP? I said, I know. I know now. I am the world authority on unanointed bad prayer. I've had more unanointed prayer per kappa of any man I've ever met. I said, I am a world-class authority on boring God bad prayer. I know about it. I can talk about it at a minute's notice. Because I did it for so many years. I know it well. And I know the answer of how to get out of it. I hear the preachers, sacrifice, pay the price. Endure him. He's worth it. Endure him. He's boring, but hell's a long time. One more statement, then we're going to close. 
I mean, one more line. I'm going to just talk about for a minute. At your, look at verse 11. At your right hands are pleasures. David went, I mean, if it's outrageous to talk about a God of joy and happiness, a God of gladness, that was outrageous. He wrote songs about it. He wrote psalms. He sang songs. He led worship meetings about the happy, glad God who liked us when we were weak. People were going, where is David at? He took it up a whole other notch. He says, it's more than he's happy. He is the author of pleasure. He's the God of pleasure. He is the God of pleasure. Beloved, we've presented paying the price and sacrificing because the devil's exciting and God is boring, but the penalty is too great because God has more power. That isn't the way of the kingdom. So here we are. Here's sin. Here's these ten lists of sins. Whatever. All the real juicy bad ones. Twenty years old. Staring at him Because I'm a holiness preacher. And I'm a, I preach all the books on holiness and prayer and torture myself. I'm doing everything bad and just quitting all the time. God doesn't like me and I'm a hypocrite anyway. I wouldn't like me either if I was God. That's what I think. I have no idea that God sees me as genuine, just immature, and that he likes me. So here's the whole list of all the juicy ones. I would sit. I would like, okay. No. 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 I would grit my teeth. Face them off with my religious self-determination. No! And then I made vows. Here's what I do. I promise if I do one, I'll tell everybody. I said if I promise to shame myself, that would keep me away for a while. I don't ever remember ever telling anybody when I did one. But anyway, just for the record. But I remember thinking about promising to. I don't know if I actually promised to, but I remember never telling anybody. But anyway, I would just grit my teeth. No. 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 These pleasures were so powerful. The Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder. I mean, this didn't really happen this way, but he gets our attention. He turns us around. He begins, he says, I, look at King David, I am the author of pleasure. All of the pleasures originate in me, and the devil counterfeits them. I am the author of pleasures. I have pleasures, physical pleasures, mental pleasures, emotional, spiritual ones. The greatest pleasures available to the human spirit is when God reveals God to us. When God the Holy Spirit reveals His emotions and His beauty and His loving kindness, something is so excited in our spirit. When God reveals God to our spirit, it is the superior pleasures of life. See, when we touch the superior pleasures, we look back at the inferior pleasures, and this is what Sam's book is all about. You look at the inferior pleasures, and when you've experienced the superior ones, you're equipped to say no to the inferior ones. But if all you have is the inferior ones and no experience of the superior pleasures, of the touch of God in your spirit, you're under the dominion of those inferior pleasures. You have nothing to fight it with besides commitment and dedication. And beloved, that commitment, you can do it for three months, maybe three years due to strength, but you can't do it for decades. The Lord has to redirect us to fascinate us with Himself the greatest pleasure God gives the human spirit is when God reveals God to the human spirit. David said it at your right hand. Our pleasures. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 36, 8. David said, I drink of the river of your pleasures, O God. Then he said, I drink of the river of your pleasure. When God the Holy Spirit was revealing the emotions of God to David, David called it the river of pleasure. Beloved, I'm talking from experience.
not just from a Bible verse. When God reveals God, it fascinates, exhilarates. It's the most powerful, satisfying. We don't have to be intimidated by all that the devil's offering us. Boring devil, exciting God, if we only relate to him in the way he wants to be related to. I said it today. The pornography shops, the believers are going to have nothing to do with them. But the pornography industry is entrenched deep in the church and in the church leadership. There are more, there's hundreds of thousands of God's people all over the earth entrenched and addicted to pornography. I'm not looking at them, telling them how evil they are. I'm telling them there is a way out. And it isn't by looking at pornography going, no, no, no. It's by finding what he feels about you. Seeing yourself different. Being exhilarated. Being fascinated. You look back and say, boring. We're going to get out of it. Not because we grit our teeth. We're going to get out of it because we're going to lose interest in it. It's a totally different paradigm. We're going to lose interest in it. Look at verse 8. Here's the one thing thing. I've set the Lord. This, this is the center of the psalm. It's his prayer life. Verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8. I've set the Lord before me. That's night and day prayer. That's the one thing. You know, we've talked Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing, I've gazed on his beauty. That's the same thing as verse 8. David says, I have a deep prayer life. Deep prayer life. Now, never do you find David telling people to sacrifice to have a prayer life. It never occurred to David that the presence of God's joy and pleasure was something he sacrificed to go enjoy. It never crossed his mind. Maybe in his youth it did, but certainly not uh, later on. Verse 8, I've set the Lord before me. He's put there, radical prayer life. Verse 9, my heart is glad because he's near me in prayer. He says, my prayer life is not a bummer. My prayer life makes me glad. I love this way. I tell you, that form of holiness, the Lord told Paul Cain, I'm going to give a new approach to holiness. It's going to be a young adult movement that's going to touch the earth. He said there's going to be new music that's going to go to the ends of the earth, but I'm going to give him a new approach to holiness. And I, I think I understand. I don't understand it all. It's, a whole, it's an approach to holiness of understanding and encountering David's, God's emotions. We're students of God's emotions. We're going to study the life of David, the Song of Solomon, and we're going to, many books of, I mean, Genesis to Revelation, but we're going to fill our being with the knowledge of what burns in God's heart. Remember two and a half years ago, I've been pastoring 25 years. I'll end with this story. I've been pastoring 25 years and I'm resigning the church, resigning my salary, getting, signing off the church board off of everything. I'm having a family meeting. We haven't announced it yet, but I'm, I get my two sons, Luke and Paul. They're 18 and 20 at the time. Now they're 21 and 23. Well, I guess they were 17 and 19 because it was uh, nearly three years ago. 17 and 19. Go, okay. I said, I am resigning the church. Really? Yes. That's what I want to do. I'm going to resign the church. And we're going to, what are you going to do? I'm giving my salary over everything. Huh. Okay. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to get this little trailer. And I got four or five people that want to join me. We're going to go to the trailer. We're going to get some guitar players. We're going to just like sing hours. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do for your real job? No, no. We're, it's going to grow. It's going to grow. People are going to join us. There's four or five right now. You're going to go to the trailer, okay, get a couple of guitar players. You have no salary. Like, what are you going to do, like, for your real job? No, that's what we're going to do. 
My boys, they, they love me. Luke and Paul, they went, they're both here. They're here today and yesterday and tomorrow. And, and uh, I said, good. <laughs> One of them says, why? <laughs> Just for fun, why? Are you mad at the church? I go, no, I love the church. I said, I'm doing it. And I'm going to spend, I was uh, just spending lots of time fasting for a number of years there. And uh, I said, I want to fast more. I want to get those guitar players. We're just going to sing songs. And I said, this may surprise you. Here's really why I'm doing it. Because I love pleasure. They said, because you love pleasure? I go, yeah, that's why I'm doing it. I love pleasure. I was being a little weird on purpose. I mean, I knew I was playing with their mind, but I was being totally honest, too. I said, you know, the guys you guys all hang out with, you young guys, you don't have near the appetite for pleasure I do. I have such a heavier demand in my being for pleasure than you do. I can't do the other thing. My longings, my capacity for pleasure, I am addicted. i got to have more. i got to feel it deeper. I'm a total addict to pleasure. I'm going to go in that place. I'm going to get a couple of guitar players. We're going to fast and pray. We're going to study the emotions of God. We're going to go, oh, I love you. I love you. Oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. I go, that's why I'm really doing it. I love pleasure. I go, what do you guys think? They go, good, Dad. We're with you. That's, that's good. Amen. Let's stand. Have the worship team come up. Remember, at 11 o'clock in room D, 11, we're not going to announce it. It's going to be on the overhead. Right at 11, we're going to slip down. And anybody that can help us build this network with, uh, with the call and the One Thing Conference is we need an army of people everywhere. We're working on this together. And... The Lord wants to show you He's not boring. He's not boring. And we don't have to sacrifice to hang out with Him. It's not a sacrifice. It's only a sacrifice because our ideas are wrong. Our ideas are so wrong. The Lord wants to show us what He looks like emotionally. Then He's going to show us what we look like to Him spiritually. And then all the other life decisions will take care of themselves. Psalm 16, okay. Now look at the life of David. We're going to continue where we had the other night. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask you to come and awaken our hearts. Weak and broken people. Come and reveal your heart to empower our hearts. Lord, we want to be wholehearted. We want to be yours. We know it takes God to love God. So we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, come and reveal the heart of the Father and the Son to empower us to be lovers of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Psalm 16, we were looking at this the other, the other night. You could title Psalm 16, Enjoying Intimacy with God. You could title Psalm 16, 
enjoyable prayer. It's one of the most important psalms where David opens his heart and tells us the things that he understood that empowered his heart to be a man after God's own heart. See, we care about the life of David because David was called by God the man after God's own heart and the church at the end of the age is going to be a church after God's own heart. The life of David, I said this the other day, is a divine pattern for the whole church at the end of the age of the journey into holy passion and abandonment. This may surprise you. It's really true what I'm going to say. King David is no different than you. King, uh, King David in his youth, he had the same youthful lust. He had the same ambitions. He had the same pain and propensity to discouragement and despair. Despair was something that touched David a number of times throughout his ministry and career in his life, his adult life. David knew what it meant to fight through depression, but he knew what it meant to get through it. But when David got through depression, that didn't mean he was done with it forever because it would come back again in another season. David knew about lust. He knew about immorality. David knew about anger. David knew about ambition. Whatever you do, don't think of the man after God's own heart, King David, as the man on the pedestal that, wow, 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 wow. God revealed more about David than any man in the Bible except Jesus, and he revealed his temptation, his weakness, his discouragement, his depression, so that people like me and people like you would read his life and not say, wow, David, we would say, if he can, I know I can. The message of the life of David is this. If he can, I know I can in the grace of God. If you read David and you go, wow, you've not read the life of David right. If you go, wow, about him, what an unbelievable man. Holy Spirit whispers and says, no, read it again. You don't get it. When I first studied the life of David, the first time I ever taught it, it's in 1976. I know some of you... Weren't even born in 1976. I taught through the life of David. 20 sessions. As a young pastor, 20 years old, church planner. My first series, little church of 50 out in the country. Opened to 1 Samuel chapter 13. It was my first beginning series I ever taught, my first series. Little country church taught the life of David. The first time I taught the life of David, I taught it wrong. I'm not saying I, I'm teaching it all right now. I'm just teaching it different than that. I taught Big David. Wow, man of God, hero. I want to be like David. I want to be awesome. So I read the life of David. I've taught the life of David many times over the years. My understanding began to change dramatically. I went, so I began to really understand the life of David. All through First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. You want to read it first? The middle of First Samuel. Learn about chapter 16, and all of 2 Samuel and Chronicles, and all through the book of Psalms. 
So I began to teach it over the years. I began to study it more thoroughly and then put the Psalms in where they belong in the life of David. Because I could read Psalm 18 right after David's defeat and eventual victory at Ziklag. As my awesome son, Luke, taught so awesome today. I was in the seminar and I said, that's my boy. That's my boy. That's my boy. Anyway, I know it was about him and the Lord, but I just couldn't help just shining a little bit there. Anyway, Psalm 18 was written after David's struggle with Ziklag, and I began to fit which Psalms fit where, and when you get the whole picture, I don't have a whole picture, I just got a lot clearer than I used to, I began to read David and say, David, you kind of like did some pretty bad things. I was kind of depressed about David for a while. Maybe early 80s, I was kind of discovering a new David. I remember one time in 1985, I gave a sermon. May of 85, I could just remember it. I gave 10, not the only 10, but 10 failures in David's life in First and Second Samuel. It's more than 10. Everybody knows David sinned with Bathsheba. And everybody knows he did a couple other things, but they can't remember what it was. But I, one Sunday morning, I laid out ten of David's failures, put about three minutes on each one. Our church was so upset at David, they were thinking about getting together and voting him out of the Bible. I said, you can't do that. You can't vote somebody out of the Bible. It doesn't work that way. So they wrote, a committee rose up and said, well, we, at least we can ban him from the children's church curriculum. Let's censor this guy out of the children's curriculum. I'm teasing about all that. They didn't really do that. But my point was they were horrified. I put the real David in front of them, the glory of his abandonment and the reality of his struggle and when you see that, it's not, wow, David, big David, it's, wow, God, big God. Messed up David, big God. I said, I like that. I can relate to messed up guy, big God. Now, I like that kind of doctrine. It's amazing God chose him to be the man. He called the man after his own God heart after his own heart, the picture of the end-time church. I go, David, amazing. At first I said, Lord, why not pick Joseph or Daniel, somebody, no failures in the Bible. Nothing, nothing's wrong. They didn't do anything wrong recorded in the Bible, Joseph and Daniel. I said, why don't you use them? The answer is something like, that's not a picture of my people's journey. I want my people to relate to the journey. They can be lovers of God. And it was the life of David that made me say this. Why not me? I remember the time when I first said this sentence, I go, if he can, I begin to read other biographies. Remember, most biographies exaggerate. It's a uh, nice, polite way to say they lie. Most biographies were written by people enamored by the subject of the biography. That's why they wrote, oh, this guy is so awesome. So they write this story. They're all enamored, and they never tell about their sin or struggle. They tell about their victories. Chapter 1, the great victory. Chapter 2, the greater victory. Chapter 3, you will never believe what I'm going to tell you. Chapter 4, forget it. You don't have a chance to do this. Chapter 5, put him in the Hall of Fame. 
and we read it, we give it to our friends, unbelievable exaggeration, which is a polite way to say lies. We read it. I read tons of these biographies. I lifted up my heart, my vision. I was going to be like them. And then I began to grow up a little bit and said, wait a second, wait a second. Those guys were as dorky as I am. I, we need a real biography. God says, I gave you one. It's the life of David. It's the real one. Psalm 16 is important for this reason. If we can know what David knew, we could live in our heart before God in the way David did. Let's say that again. If we knew what David knew about God, we could live like David lived, the way he carried his heart before God. I don't mean we can be king of Israel. We can carry our heart before God in the way David did. But if we don't know the things David knows about God's heart, you can't carry your heart like David did unless you know what he knows about God. The key to David's obedience was his revelation of God's heart. I say this like a broken record, and I encourage you all to say this. I was talking to someone the other day. They go, well, I mean, that's just how you say it. I don't want to say it that way. I go, oh, forget that old dumb thing of trying to be unique and original and awesome. If it's practical, just use it. I don't hesitate to take stuff from anybody. I have such a passion to get the truth out. I don't care who said it. I don't try to memorize it. Couldn't care less. Don't give anybody credit ever. Because I just don't care. I don't care. Like, I remember saying something. I thought I was quoting Paul Kane at the end. I went to Paul. I said, Paul, I remember you said that. He goes, well, you're the one that first told me. I go, really? You got that from me? I said, I don't even remember it. I said, I always thought I got it from you. It's one little sentence. My point is, I don't care who said it. If it works and it's real, run with it. Now, some guys are all uptight about it. They may give you a lawsuit if you, if you don't quote them. But in our little world, you can use anything around here and it's yours. Because you know what? We got it from someone else. No, I mean someone else. And he is so rich and he's so nice. He goes, I love it when you use my stuff. I love it when you use my stuff. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to tell you a funny story that's not related to anything. It's a total bunny trail. It's Rick Joyner. I love this story. It's real short. Rick Joyner, I, we're good buddies, and Rick was preaching and this some years ago, and this lady was a new believer, and she came up to Rick. She said, Rick, that was really good. And Rick said, well, that was the Lord. And she goes, she's a new believer. She goes, it wasn't that good. <laughs> Rick said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I love that one. So when I tell people it was the Lord, I'm always expecting that lady to show them goes, wasn't that good? <laughs> anyway. The definition from 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. A man after God's own heart. I want you to get this. Use this. David was a man after God's own heart because he obeyed the commands of God's heart. Number one. And number two, he studied the emotions of God's heart. It's okay if you say those phrases. You don't have to come up with a unique way to say it. He obeyed the commands of God's heart. That's the most common definition of a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. 
We obey the commands of God's own heart, but the most neglected definition is that he studied the emotions of God's heart. Beloved, I know I said this the other night, but we're gonna, I just want to say it over and over. When you study the emotions of God's heart, when you study what David studied, it equips your heart to live like David lived. You can't read the victories, ignore his revelation of God, and try to live in his victory. I see that all the time. The victories of David are accented. The weaknesses of David are completely neglected in the story. And the revelation of, da- of God's heart that David had is completely neglected. As a rule, all around the body of Christ. we got to reverse it. we got to tell about David's victories. But we got to tell how weak and broken he was. Then the next question arises, well, if he had such great victories and he was so dorky to start off, how did he do it? That's the question of the hour. It's what he understood about God's heart, God's emotions. David was a student of the emotions of God. When I study God's emotions, it equips my heart to obey. I'm burdened about this point. I know I'm saying it over and over because I'm burdened about it. We get a conference like this. 3,000 fiery young adults ready to go. They want to obey. What I'm burdened about, you will hear this over and over by almost every speaker on this platform. You've heard it. And yet they will. some will go out of this place. I want to obey. I want to obey. And you will neglect to study the emotions of God. Beloved, David's victories, are, it's only a true, it's only true if you see his victories in light of his failures, in light of his revelation of God's heart. If you only see his victories, you are preaching air to people. If that's all you do is call him to David's victory without telling the truth about his struggle and without telling the truth about what equipped him for victory. It's all through the book of Psalms. It's stunning what David understood about God. When I read it, I just, I marvel. I go, Lord, David understood so much more than anybody in history up to his time. He was, in, he was miles beyond all the others, even in the Word of God, in his revelation of God's heart. And the Lord says something like this, that's why I call him a man after my own heart. He understood my heart. He understood my feelings. And when he discovered his own weakness, he had confidence to stand before me and run to me, not from me. I know I, know I say these things like a broken record, but they, they bear repeating over and over. We have to be able to run to Him, not from Him, when we discover our weakness. When I was 18, 20 years old, I was, my goal was to go be a missionary and die as a martyr in the mission field poor. You know, that was, I thought that was the ultimate. If I could go to the mission field, be poor and die, somehow it would really be cool when I went to heaven. All of this young, uh, young adult, I mean, we had this young adult movement. We were all going for it. I mean, like these two guys I introduced earlier, Don and Tim, there's a whole army of us. About, about a hundred of us went into full-time ministry in a very short amount of uh, time from one youth group. A hundred different men and women went into full-time ministry from one youth group in about five years. We were going for revival. We wanted to be, have the victory of David. We were going to go do it. But all of us hit that wall because we discovered lust. Anger, bitterness, depression. We went, wait, what are we going to do with this? And many of the guys that I was good friends with, when they discovered their own lust, anger, bitterness, depression, all kinds of pride, they broke down, 
looked up in shame, turned around and ran from God to go hide somewhere instead of running to God for God to deliver them because they didn't have an idea that God wanted them in that brokenness. I didn't either at first. I thought when I discovered an area of sin that because I discovered it, God just discovered it. And I thought, now that God just discovered it, everything is different now. I mean, I remember the first times I blew it in a bunch of areas. I went, ah! I remember this vividly. I mean, it's so gross now, but I just remember it. I said, can you believe it? I can't believe it. Can you? The Lord's answer, I didn't hear anything, but would have been something like, oh, there's a lot more where that came from. I thought he was shocked because I was shocked. I was scandalized. I can't believe it. The Lord says, I'm going to get rid of all your pride. You're going to believe the whole thing before it's over. <laughs> God says through the word, I want you to relate to me on the basis of my burning desire for you. My ability to give you a willing heart and my grace. I want you to relate, to relate to me on that basis. Here's how I wanted to relate to God. I wanted to go before God and say, prayer, fasting, awesome mic, awesome mic, awesome mic. Pazazzo, here I am. And the Lord go, wow. The Father said, Jesus, come get a load of that guy in Kansas City. He's different. Lord, would you mind telling my friends what you just said? We want to relate to God on the basis of our accomplishments. We want to produce something that wows God. All the ages, come look at that. That's unbelievable, that dedication. Then, but here's the problem. If we relate to God on the basis of achievement, spiritual or natural, spiritual achievement means victory for a month straight over a bad thing or current fasting for six months. If we want to relate to God on the basis of achievement, how much we can achieve, how hard we can do it, how well we do it, how good our report card is in the Spirit, if we want to relate to God on that basis, which is impossible, by the way, if you succeed, you're proud. If you fail, you're condemned. Any way it goes, you're proud or condemned, and the grace of God is quenched. The Lord says, Mike, I want you to stand. No big offer, no big claim, no big nothing. Confident that I'm lovesick over you, and I have the power to change you, and I want you. And I went, at first it was hard. I mean, I'm telling you, the human spirit is not like this, because there is so much pride in the human spirit. The religious spirit is driven by pride far more than by dedication. There is this deep well within us that we have something unique about our dedication that, it, that moves God. And we want to relate to God based on how powerful our dedication is so we can move Him. And here's the proof of it. Here's the proof when you have that. And we all have residues of that. Even those of us that have been around a while, we still have residues of that. Here's, here's the proof that that deep thing is working in us. When somebody else blows it, we go, can you believe that? Our judgments against others is always the alarm system. There's a residue in us that we're relating to God based on our own achievement. Can you believe that guy did that? And the Lord goes, ah, ah, do you forget so quickly? Are you relating to me on any basis different than the fact I really like you? I have forgiven you? Our judgments towards others is the alarm system in us that we're still relating to God based on what we produce.
When we can accept others in the grace of God, like ourselves, we understand how we stand before God, then the pride thing goes away and the condemnation goes away. When I've had a tremendous season of prayer and fasting, I can't go before God any more confident than if I had, I've blown it for a month. Everything's horrible. I feel worse when I blow it, and I feel better when I don't. But God doesn't feel any different. That's the key. God doesn't feel different. I do, but He doesn't. And if I can stand steady based on His desires and His emotions, and I begin to relate locked into that instead of mine, and I begin to study His emotions, confidence wells up in me. It's the kind of confidence is so strong, that confidence, that even knowing I prayed or fasted, it doesn't, can't, it cannot defile that confidence. How good I've been for a week or a month doesn't dilute or defile that pure confidence based on love. But neither does my failure dilute that confidence. My achievement or my failure cannot dilute and defile confidence that flows from the revelation of love. Now, I'm not there yet. I'm getting, I'm closer than I was five or ten years ago, but I still do that, throw my chest out and throw my shoulders down. The Lord goes, are we still doing that? Do you still think I like you because you did great last month? Well, let me tell you, it wasn't really that great, not really. Are you still running from me because you blew it last month? Come on, let's move on. I burn with desire. I got big heart. You're weak and stumble. You got little heart. Let's do it together. Big heart, burning desire, little guy, little heart. Hey, I like that, says the Lord. Let's do it together forever. Well, in that case, I got it made. You're getting it, Mike. I got it made. You mean you like me the whole time? You're getting it. Well, in that case, I don't ever have to run from you. I don't have to pretend, and I don't have to run from you. I don't have to hide from you. I don't have to try to make anything happen. And let me tell you a secret. You all know it. It feels wonderful to be loved. Oh, I love to be loved. It feels so good. And when we feel the wonder of being enjoyed and loved, even when God knows all of our weakness, when I feel that enjoyment and that wonder, I don't want to go do other stuff. That, there's a big hole right in our being that only the feeling of God's love and God's enjoyment in our weakness, it drives away all kinds of counterfeit desires. And I go, Lord, this is so good. I want the whole world to do this. This is the fun way to live. That's what we're going to do forever and eternity. Beloved, the heart and the life of David is critical to understand. David had confidence that God loved him and that he was a lover even in his weakness. That is, that's the life of David in one sentence. That David has more than that. Psalm 16, verse 11. One of the, the pinnacle revelations of David's heart. Again, these three lines in verse 11 are so loaded don't think of them as three casual lines. Again, I, I like to say these were these lines were the titles of sections in his library. David had thousands of hours of things to say about all three of those lines. Don't think you read those lines, heard three minutes of teaching. I, well, I got that one down. Psalm 16, verse 11, sums up David's theology of God's emotions clearer than any one verse in the whole Bible. It is absolutely powerful. 
Now, you're not going to get this, hearing a teaching on it, reading a commentary on it for a week or a month. This is something we're going to grow in, just inch by inch, year by year. We're going we're to fight for this, meaning we get it in our brain, we get it in our lips, we tell, our, we tell people, that's why I want people to get this stuff and preach it, because I always learn the most by preaching it. I told you this morning, I, I would get these other guys' books word for word. I mean, for years, word for word. Just write it word for word. Get up and memorize it. Give it as a sermon. The guys at the, at the college campus would say, well, what did you mean by that point? I don't know. I could watch me. I don't know what he meant, or Tozer, or whoever. None of it was real to me, but you know what? The Lord, I was just echoing it, echoing it. The Lord was training my heart in it. Because I learned this. When you get into your brain, that's really important to get into your brain. You've got to fill your brain with it. But it doesn't become alive till it gets on your lips. Now, I get it on my lips by speaking it and teaching it. But even better than that, although that's effective, I get it on my lips. I get it into my language with God in my prayer life. When these ideas get into your dialogue in prayer with God, when you talk to God... Based on these ideas, it gets into your language. The language of your heart starts changing. Beloved, your emotions are going to change in just a little bit of time. See, some people think this. They go to a conference, hear three teachings. Cool. Go up to the prayer line. Pray for me. I want to get it all. I love praying for people. But let me tell you, we can pray for you and give a little impartation. And I pray for people many times. Absolutely not a thing happens. No impartation. I never know when it does or doesn't. I'm always willing to pray. Sometimes something really powerful happens. A lot of times nothing happens. And a lot of times I don't even know. It doesn't even matter. The Lord says, take your hand out of your pocket, pray for the guy, and just give him a kiss on the way. Don't define it. I'll just pray for him. But here's my point. Even when it's a powerful impartation, even when it's the most powerful times ever in my little ministry, still that only makes a little impact on you. I can't do for you what only you can do with God in your secret life. Nobody can do this for you. You can't go to a prayer line to get it. We can give you a little jump start. We can lay hands on you in a prayer line, kind of give you a little booster. At the end of the day, Benny Hand or all the guys, nobody gives it to you at the end of the day. We can be a catalyst. We can give you a little jump start. At the end of the day, you get it in your secret life with God. But here's how you do it. So I train the IHOP staff and the others. Fill your mind with it. Fill your mind with it. Year one, year two, fill your mind with it. Fill your mind with it. And the strangest things, it's true with me as well, we start filling our mind with it. It takes us a couple years before we even get it on our lips. We need to get it in our mind on Monday and get it on our lips by Monday night. But somehow we get it in our mind on Monday and two years later we start talking about it. Or two years later before we start getting into our prayer language with God. I want to take... If there was a time some years ago I began to use this language when no one was around and say, God, you're filled with pleasure. God, you're joy and you're glad and you like me and you delight in me. And when I got it into my language alone, ooh, man, I like the feel of that, you know, ooh. See, you can change your mind. You change your mind and God changes the emotions of your heart. You don't have the power to change your emotions directly. You can't just, joy, you know, go have joy in the Lord. You know, the music, turn the music up. 
didn't work. You can't pop it out. It doesn't work that way. You can't awaken emotions by determination. You just can't love, passion for Jesus. Uh, uh, passion. Uh, 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 uh. Is that passion, Lord? No, no, that's, I love your energy, but that's not passion. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that energy. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying is, I'm not at all putting down that. That stuff is great. It really is. I, I mean, I really mean that. People trying hard and, and responding with their body is wonderful. It's a whole lot better than what a whole lot of other people are doing on the other side of town tonight, Saturday night right now. The Lord likes that. He really does. He doesn't, that's not, I'm not putting that down. What I'm telling you is this. Screaming at a conference, which I love to do, you can tell. Feeling all that at the end of the day is not the way my emotions are changed. So you leave the conference, everybody else looks awesome. Everybody else looks overflowing. Jeez, it's just old me again. The Lord says, you don't change your heart by doing that. You change your emotions or your heart by changing what's in your mind. I can promise you, the way to change your emotions is by changing what fills your mind. It won't happen in a day or a week. I can lay hands on you, everybody else can. It can be that big occasion where the big stuff happens. It's still only an inch. The big stuff is still just an inch. It's that secret life in God for the months and the years ahead. I love to pray for the people, but I know this. I can pray for them, give them a little jump start, but it is not anything close to what happens for the next one, two, three, four years in their private life. You fill your mind with it. You fill your mind with it. You study it. You get the tapes. You get the teachings. You get all these books we're talking about and a lot of other books that we don't have from other places. You read it. You read it. You study it. You read it. But I wish it didn't take people two years to get it onto their tongue after it gets in their brain. They might preach on it the next month. I don't really mean uh, on your tongue by preaching it, although preaching on it really helps me. I preached myself into more truths. I studied them, put them in my brain, memorized them, preached them. About the 30th time, I said, I think I believe this stuff. I preached myself into a lot of good things. Straight from other people's materials. I don't care. I want, I want to know God. I don't care how I get there. I'm going for this thing. Preaching, that's kind of good. That helps me. But the Lord says, no, I wanted to get into your private life with God. I want your language of your heart. I want you to say this to me when no one's around. When you talk to me intimately. The guy says, well, I don't ever talk to you intimately. The Lord says, that, that's kind of why it's stuck in the head. It's got to get on your tongue in your language with me. And then, the guy says, well, it's kind of hard. You know, it's really hard to burden for God alone. I don't mean, I mean, we've got to have our private life in God. What I mean is, we need to be with other fiery, godly believers. And I know some of you, you have no choice. You're in an out-of-the-way place. I mean, maybe there's thousands of people. I don't mean that there's nobody there. But there's nobody fiery around you. And it's a hard place. It's a wilderness. Ask God, say, Lord, give me a couple friends. Give me a couple, four, five, six, eight, ten. And Lord, please have one of them play the guitar. <laughs> no, I mean it. Yeah, get those fiery friends, but get one Dave Weens in there that did all the scales, you know. All that. You've got to have somebody, if you can, that plays one of those instruments because there's an anointing. Get in the circle. You've got to get with people that are on fire. 
The greatest gift of God in the IHOP Forerunner School world is not even the teaching per se. Teaching is helpful. The blessing of God, all this, all these things are helpful. It's the people on fire hanging out with the people on fire. That's where it really, really makes a difference. Because they're talking about it all the time. Go back to your college campuses. Get six or eight friends. I don't have any. Get some. I mean, don't stop till you get six or eight friends. If you have to drive on the other side of town, do anything. Get six or eight friends and get one of them to play the guitar. You know what I mean by that? Get one to play the guitar. Get together and worship and learn to sing the word. The anointing will start flowing. You get that anointed atmosphere. Oh my goodness, it's wonderful. But you know what? You get it in your brain. And you get it in your private life with God. You get a little group and you start singing it and... You get in your worship team and you start flowing in it. That's good too. But after a little while, T minus 10, T minus 9, T minus 8, a little bit of time, your emotions begin to change. Your emotional chemistry changes. Here's how our emotions change. Our emotions do not change by simply going to a prayer line, someone prays, and they are now changed. That's not how it works. Again, every now and then there's that special thing that happens to that one guy, that one time. And those are real. But mostly, the Lord says, Mike, open the Bible, find the teachings, fill your mind with them. Fill your mind with them. Fill your mind with them. Now, get them into your language. Say them to your friends. Teach them. Talk about them. Sing them. Get them into your private life with God. Say them back to me, God says. Say them. Say the ideas back to me. You know what happens? A little bit of time. Revelation. My heart. My heart starts getting tender. I go, Oh, man, I started to feel a little bit of this. And it's not an unbroken progression of just spiritual victory. It truly is three steps forward, two steps back. Three steps forward, two steps back. But you're constantly making ground all the time. I have had more great advances only to hit a wall and to go back. But when the five years comes and goes, I'm always taking ground all the time. So it's not a matter of you've got to take ground in a very powerful way. Every day you're taking this new ground that's so clear. That's not what I'm talking about. You just stay with it. You stay with it. You stay with it. Someone says, how are you doing? I go, I don't know. I don't measure how I'm doing. That measuring thing, if you do good, you're proud. If you do bad, you're discouraged. I threw the measuring rod a long time. I said, forget all that stuff. I'm just staying with the truth of God's heart, filling my heart with it. Someone says... Are you doing better or worse than six months ago? I go, I don't know. I don't care. All I care about is I'm doing it today. I just want to do it hard today. I don't know if I'm better than six months ago. I don't know if I'm better than you, worse than you. I don't know. I don't care. I have to touch reality. So I don't want to measure. That measuring thing is so distracting. It's just so goofy and distracting. It really is. Three years go by, another year or two, five years go by, I look around, I go, Lord, I feel that you like me. Oh, I love this. And I feel like I like you. I love this. You like me, I like you. What a way to live. You like me, I like you, and I feel it. Wow. Some guy says, hey, you want all this and that and the other? The Lord whispers, says, no, that's not what I have for you. Men will think it's really awesome, but I like you, you like me, it's working. You're, you're getting happy inside. You know what, what I'm getting at is, is that you don't go 
down a lot of paths you would have gone down when you have this reality burning on the inside of you. Now, I have it a lot more than I had it 20 years ago, but I don't have it near as much as I need it. So I'm not there. I'm a whole lot different than I was, but oh my goodness, I want so much more of this. A little bit of this makes you ravenous for more of it. There's no end to it. We're going to be doing this our whole life. Psalm 16, these three verses, verse 11, my goodness, every one of them, it's a library of truth. Every one of them, again, these were not simple little flippant sayings that David threw at the end of his song to kind of make it balance, you know, balance Psalm 16 out. He was saying, this is the pinnacle of what I understand about God. Verse 8. I said the Lord always... Nope, skip that one. Let's go to verse 5. Verse 5. Look at this. Oh, what a sentence. You are my portion. Jesus, uh, David's talking to Jesus. He says, you, you, Jesus, are my portion. Now, the portion meant, I'm just going to skip, get bottom line. It means he's the best part of the reward God has for you. God has a reward for you, but the very best part of it, the cream on the top is Jesus. Jesus says, I, I am the portion of God's promises to you. I'm the best of the best. So instead of portion, put the best of the best of what God promised me. See, God promised me many things, like He has you. And the older you are, you have more experience with God, you have more promises. God promises me certain things in economics. God has promised me certain things in the anointing. God's promised me certain things in influence. God's promised me certain things about this, that, and the other, whatever. I got 10 or 12 promises about different areas. And as the years go on, He actually adds to those promises. I mean, he knew about them all the time. I go, how come you're telling me just now? You could have told me that 10 years ago. That made me really happy. Well, since I told you 10 years ago, you would have got drunk on the promise. I want, you, I want you drunk on me, not on the promises. Now, you like me more, and now the promise doesn't make you drunk about what I'm going to do through you. Oh, and if you would have told me that 10 years ago, I would have got drunk on how much you were going to do this thing. Because, yeah... The human heart gets so easily distracted by the blessing of God. So the Lord says, here's what I'll do. I'll tell you a little bit now, a little bit later, every couple of years I'll give you another little installment because I want you to get drunk on me, not on what I'm going to do through you. Because if you do it the other way around, it's going to hurt you and it's going to injure you. I mean, it's always happening. Five, ten years go by, the Lord gives me more information. Lord, I could have used that information back ten years ago. He goes, no, it would have derailed you, it would have distracted you. You didn't have a... The structures of your heart were not formed in love with me enough to handle what I really wanted to tell you. But you can handle it now. And I got more I can tell you, but you can't handle it right now. David says, you, Lord, you are my portion. You are the cream of the crop. You are the... The cream is rise to the top, is what I'm trying to say. The best of the best. Of all the promises, knowing Jesus... Let me break it down. Knowing Jesus is what I mean, but let's say it differently. Me feeling that He likes me and me feeling I like Him. Me feeling fascinated by new understanding of Him. The most exhilarating thing on, in this age or in heaven, when God the Holy Spirit reveals a little bit about God the Father and the Son, when God reveals God, when God the Holy Spirit tells me a new little thing about the beauty of Jesus, I go, oh man, oh I love that feeling. It is such the discovery, the pleasure of discovering new things about God exhilarates the human spirit. 
Now, God has a billion volts, and I only have 110 units. So God kind of gives me one little volt at a time, and I go, Oh, unbelievable! Oh, oh! That looks like that's only one more volt than I gave you last time. Oh, oh, oh! That's awesome! I love the feeling of this. There's such a pleasure of discovering things about God. God's like a vast ocean. A vast ocean of glory and beauty and love. Beloved, we're standing before that vast ocean. Endless depths, lakes with endless vast being of God. Beauty, love, power. He will, he will thrill us. He, we will marvel. Every drink will go, ah! And here we are. We think we're deep in God. We think, oh man, we're deep in the Lord. One young guy says, man, you're deep in the Lord. I look down. I'm not even in the water. I'm just on the wet sand. I'm just on wet sand. I mean, I'm not three inches in the water. The sand's wet, but that feels good. Beloved, none of us are very deep. I promise you that. But I tell you, I may not be in real deep in the water, but my toes are feeling it just a teeny bit. And I love this thing called walking with God and feeling Him and knowing Him. I used to be way back here on dry sand, looking at the water, saying, how many years will it take me to get to that water? But now I'm right there on the wet sand. I'm not very deep, but boy, I'm starting to get it. Billions and billions of years from now, we'll be in that ocean. The pleasure of, oh, we'll feel more, we'll know more. God's a God of pleasure. He will pleasure us. He will make us be exhilarated. The discovery, the, how exciting it is to discover something new. I don't mean just a new idea. I mean when the Spirit zings you with it, whatever that means. And the Spirit, you know, ooh, if you know it, you go, oh, oh. You can always tell in an IHOP when Gary Weeds, he's over there, oh, oh. I'm sitting at my little table, doing my little Bible study, I turn around, and Gary go, oh. Little tears are coming down. Look at the person, I go, Gary, you just got another zap. <laughs> so, stands up, Guy goes to the door. I mean, he's always got that same look. It's a great look. <laughs> he's going to that door. So I go out the other door. I know if I see him in the hallway, I'm going to get like three full sermons for the next month at the next conference. Hi, Gary. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Give it to me, Gary. Give it to me. The angel. Those little guys, we only gave them one volt. They get so excited about so little. Our capacity is so small. I'm not trying to make the point of how small our capacity is. That's not really my point. My point is how exhilarating a little bit is. You know why so much of the body of Christ is bored? The body of Christ is suffering from spiritual boredom right now. Because they're trying... I'm talking about the sincere body of Christ right now. I'm talking about the on fire body of Christ. They are suffering from spiritual boredom because they're trying to obey the commands like David. They're studying his victories and trying to imitate his victories. They don't hardly know anything about his emotions. So with a locked heart, a locked heart, a locked heart, they're trying to jump higher. They're trying to be more victorious with a locked heart. They do that for three months, they get so tired, they get into condemnation, and they just sink into boredom. Beloved, you're not going to jump your way into this. You're not, it's not going to be some religious self-determination that's going to make this thing work. I beg the students, 
And I, and I, I mean, at the forerunner school, and I, I beg you, get this, study it, study it, study it, study it, get it in your tongue, say it to each other, say it to God, sing it, say it, sing it, pray it, say it, sing it, pray it, get it in your tongue, get it moving all the time. And don't measure it in a month, let a year or two go by, let another three, you get impatient, throw a little bit of fasting on it. Just sold it with fasting. Because fasting, what it does, if we fast with the right attitude, if we're fasting to earn revelation, forget it. If we're fasting because we love God and we just want more, fasting increases our capacity to receive more faster. Fasting doesn't earn it. I got a couple of tape series called The Bridegroom Fast. It's fasting to enlarge our capacity to feel. How many of you like to feel? How many of you like to feel loved? How many of you, but I tell you something as exciting as feeling loved is loving back. I love, I love to be loved, but I love to love. I mean, it's a two-way deal. It's not, if I was only loved, that would be awesome. But feeling all the energy and the strength of your being, focused in purity. Oh, that, I love that feeling. I love being loved, and I love the feeling of all of my strength and energy focused in purity. Back, I go, oh, I was made to love. But I love, there's something else. I love to be fascinated. I love those little one-volt things. I'm up there, oh! Gary said, I think old Bickle got something up there. Oh! You don't have to do little twitches. That's not my point. But if you got our personality, I mean, I'm, it's, the, it's not the volume. I'm just the kind of guy that says, pass the salt. I just say it loud, even at home at the dinner table. It's not more anointed. I try to tell people in our ministry lines, I go, I shout on the microphone, that doesn't move God, it doesn't move the spirits, the demons don't care at all. It doesn't move anything, shouting. I go, that's just my personality. It didn't hurt anything, but it didn't help anything. It's just how, who I am. I shout for the salt at the dinner table. That's just my personality. When I get something good, I just go, oh, oh. I just like to do that. I don't have to do it. It's fun. <laughs> or I just, I get another couple cups of coffee and start moving my leg. You can tell when Alan Hood is hooked up. It's happening, man. It is happening. I, he sits right behind me. I lean back so some of it will get me. It doesn't really work that way. Beloved, when one year, two years, three years, four years, it, it's not a, a minute. I'm on a marathon pace. We are on a marathon. I tell him, I go, stay steady, get the goal down the road. Don't measure it in the next month or year. Don't compare to one another. Don't see if you're better this month than last month. That is a trap. You're proud if you succeed. You're condemned if you fail. Don't look at your neighbor and figure out if they're doing it. That's none of my business. I want to get that goal down the road. Jesus, I'm going to keep moving. Moving. I'm going to fill my mind with it. I'm going to get it on my tongue. I'm going to tell you every time I learn something. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to say it over coffee. I'm going to sing it. I'm going to do everything with it. I'm going to get it in my prayer life and say, God, you like me. You like me. You get it in your language. Then, first the mind, second the tongue, the third the heart, the emotions. I'm talking about the emotions. I start feeling light. Oh, I love to be light. I know I'm repeating it, but the Lord just wants me to stay here. I start feeling light. Lord, you know, you, you know I'm like kind of messed up. Are you still into this thing? Do you still like me? <laughs> oh, you're way more messed up than you know. But you're way more glorious in your destiny than you know. You have no idea what you do to my heart. Lord, when you came after me, did you know what you were getting when you started chasing me? Beloved, we think God is surprised 
at what he gets when he catches us. He knows what he's getting when he comes after you. He knows that. You don't know, but he knows what he's getting. He's not shocked. He goes, oh, I didn't buy this. I wanted something else. He knows what he's getting when he gets you. He knows it. He says, you like me. I feel like. I tell you, a thousand lesser... No, let me say it different. A thousand other emotions are subdued, are quieted when I feel like. There's all these raging negative emotions, rejection. There's these emotions of pride and legalism and depression and, and immorality. All the lusts that you can put. Put a hundred of them, whatever. Many emotions are quieted under one experience feeling like. It's an amazing reality. I go, Lord, it's really quite simple. He goes, it's really, really, really simple. And then, it's not enough I feel like. Oh, I love it. I love that feeling. But I love to like Him back. I love to love Him. When all the strength of my being is locked into Him. And I, it's exaggerated to say all the strength. But let's say enough of it is locked into Him. I love you. It's real. Oh, I love to love you. I was made to be a lover. I love to be fascinated. I feel, I marvel a little bit. Volt, one little, one little volt, you know. God's got a billion. One touches me. I like it. I like it. I want to be fascinated. The Lord says, fill your mind. Fill your mind. Fill your mind. Get it in your language. Let me stir your hearts. I go, Lord, I want it more. i got to have more. He says, well, then fast. Increase your capacity. Grow. Grow. Verse 5. David said, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. The Lord, you are my primary reward. Verse 8, when he says, I've set the Lord always before... No, let's not go there yet. Let's go there in a minute. Let's go to verse 2. Look at this. David says, O my soul, you have said to the Lord... Here it is. This is very, very, very important, verse 2. Every line of Psalm 16 is vital to enjoyable prayer. I'm going to talk about another moment or two. I'm going to have Luke Sullivan come up and get ready to lead worship. But look at verse 2. David says this. David's writing, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are, my, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here's what David's doing. Verse 2. My soul. O my soul. David's talking. He's saying, in my inner life with God. Here's David's. David talks to God deep in his heart. Beloved, if these ideas don't get to the lang- your prayer language with God, they won't work. David actually, in his secret life, turned it into language. God, you are my Lord. Instead of saying you are my Lord, if you say you are my Lord, a lot of you will think you are my boss. You are my boss. That's not what David's saying. David's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. I will do anything you say. Think of a lovesick woman before her bridegroom. I love you. I love you. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you are my boss. I salute, I report to duty. He's not saying that. He's going, I love you. Within my soul, I say, I love you. I love you. I'll do anything you want. I I love to do what you want. I love you. Now notice David's talking within his soul. And if Bible teaching doesn't get into your language with God in your private life, it doesn't transform your heart. Then look, he says, oh, I love this. My goodness is nothing. My accomplishments... In the spirit or the natural. What I produce in my ministry, what I produce in my disciplines, it's nothing if you don't desire me. If you're not coming after me, if your burning desire stops, my fasting will do nothing. My fasting isn't what makes it work. Your burning desire, you want me. That's what makes it work. And if my ministry...
I mean, it really was. Because the Lord told me He wanted me to spend my whole life on Song of Solomon. I mean, it was the most awesome encounter I've ever had in my life in terms of my direction of ministry. One time, 1988, it happened. I was so excited. I mean, just the, the buzz. I mean, God spoke to me, literally spoke to me by the audible voice and said, Song of Solomon 8.6, or the book of Song of Solomon, that's your life message. Oh, I got a message. I don't know what it is, but I got one. I knew one would come one of these days. I read it. I said, oh my goodness. Flowers and roses and fragrance and pink and stuff. I go, no way, no way. Now, some of you know this. Most of you don't know this. Some of you know this. My father was a world champion boxer. Matter of fact, this auditorium right here next door, wherever we're at, the municipal auditorium, the 10,000-seater, when I was a boy, I went and watched my father as a professional boxer boxing. I remember I went there many times as a boy. Watched my dad knock the guy out. Yeah! And then we'd go, he'd take me to the locker room with all these pro boxers. And these big old guys, big muscles, and whoa! And I trained for years in boxing. Now, because my dad was world champion, I could say, my dad can beat your dad and I can prove it. I grew up in the boxing world. My dad got mixed up with the mafia. It sounds like a movie, but it's true. He did. There's a big mafia thing going on in Kansas City in those days. And uh, he was, did kind of a few little, on a few little uh, task forces with him. I don't know what he did. My mom didn't know. When my father died when I was 18, I go, like, what did he do? See, I, I didn't even know it, but we had a few family friends that were shot and killed in, in cars. They were found in cars. One night, all of our, our windows were shot out by guns in our house. A number of those kind of things happened. A couple family friends, and one time I was watching with my mother, the godfather. I looked at her. My father's been dead a few years. I go, that stuff happened to us. She goes, well, I don't know what's going on, but he did stuff. I go, no. She goes, yeah, he did. I go, like what? She goes, I have no idea. I go, he did stuff? She goes, remember when our windows got shot out that time, and then so-and-so died in the car? And I went, ew. I worked hard and got a scholarship to play college football. I was a tough guy. David Roos was not being true. I, I wrestled him. I could whip him every time back when he was on staff. He said it wrong today. He said I had it backwards. Anyway, I was a little tough guy. So here I am, man of God. Praise God. Devil, come out or I'm coming in after you. Life of David. The Lord speaks to me. To me, through this, I tell the story, I don't want to go into it, the audible voice, Psalm of Psalm is your life message. Awesome, I got a life message. I mean, it was the most ex exciting experience that morning. I read Psalm of Psalm and I go, God, I I'm a boxer's son. I I'm a, I would rather do the life of David, the book of Romans, the book of Revelation, something like that. I don't want to do Psalm of Psalm. I don't like Psalm of Psalm. So I got 150 commentaries over the next few years, started reading it, and I'm, long story short, I began to love it. Now it's years later. It's what? 14 years later. And I'm going, and I understand the life of David, Psalm of Solomon, the same message. David was the lovesick warrior. He was the lovesick worshiper, was the warrior king. Beloved men, men of God out here, I want every man in this room to stand up. I want to talk to you for one second. Every man in this room. Luke Sullivan up here. Luke, come on up. We're ending with this. Is your band here? Yeah, tell me, come on up. Okay, shh. 
Man, I'm very serious here. Man, this is real. God is calling a generation of men to enter into the affections of God's heart, to be stunned by His beauty like King David. Song of Solomon is just absolutely line upon line of the feelings of God's heart for weak people. Men, if a group this size, a group this size, got on fire for this, I don't care, well, I mean, I do care, but what kind of bondage you're in? If you're absolutely stuck in pornography, and I'm sure a number of you in this room are, I mean, I understand how...